ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so in the last session then we had read the hadith regarding the night of al-isra wal-mi'raj when the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was taken up to the heavens and then on that night the establishment of the obligatory prayers occurred initially it was 50 prayers five zero and then we mentioned in the hadith how it occurred that after 50 prayers was initially established and the Prophet ﷺ was returning on the way he came across again Musa ﷺ who asked him what Allah had ordained upon him and so the Prophet ﷺ told him it was 50 prayers so Musa salam then mentioned that I have experienced my people, my ummah before you and your ummah will not be able to burden 50 prayers in the day so go back and ask for it to be lightened and so this carried on happening up until eventually the prayers were reduced to five prayers a day five prayers in the day with the reward of 50 prayers those five prayers of the day as a side point we've covered before the timings of those five prayers of the day what are the timings of those five prayers of the day what is the timing for the fajr prayer when does it enter at the true dawn there is a false dawn and there is a true dawn and how do you differentiate between the two of them what is the false dawn So the false dawn is that at night it's dark then when the first light appears initially it appears in an upward vertical fashion but then after a while that light disappears and it becomes dark again the night then the light appears again but this time it appears not vertically but horizontally across the horizon that is the time for the true fajr now it has entered the initial light that appears vertically going upwards that is not fajr time yet that goes again then the light appears again the second time now but horizontally across the horizon 
That is the true dawn. That is when Fajr begins. Dhuhr time. Just after the zenith, so the sun, it comes up from the eastern side and it continues to rise and rise until it goes right above the head to the middle of the day, the peak of the sky. Then when it passes that peak and now enters into the western side to go down into the west, as soon as it enters into that western side of the sky, past the middle point of the day now, into the western side, so your shadow will slowly now begin on your, the other side, the eastern side, but that is now the time for Dhuhr. That is when Dhuhr now begins. When does it end and when does Asr begin? Nobody knows. How do you pray Asr? So the majority opinion of the scholars, many of them mention when the shadow of an object is equal to its length. Any object outside, look at the shadow. When the shadow is equal to the length of the object itself, that's the end of Dhuhr now. And then straight after that now, the shadow is going to start becoming bigger than the length of the object. Asr time is in now. And when does Asr end? One opinion is at the yellowing of the sun. Meaning in the summer days in the UK as well, you can tell a bit, perhaps in winter too, that just before Maghrib, when the sun is going down, you notice it's a different color to what it was when it was in the middle of the sky. It becomes much more of an orangey, yellowy type of color as it's about to go down. When it becomes that orangey, yellowy color, then that is the end of Asr time according to some of the scholars. But has Maghrib started? It hasn't yet. Maghrib isn't going to start until the sun actually sets, meaning there's a gap there. So according to some of the scholars, Asr time ends before Maghrib time starts. When the sun becomes yellowy, orangey, hazy, about to go down, you see it like that. That's Asr time ended. But then Maghrib is going to start after it actually sets. Some of them say that that gap from the time when the sun becomes the yellowy orange up until when it sets, that gap, you can pray Asr in it, but only as a necessity. If something occurred and you were unable to pray it before the yellowness of the sun, then you can pray it in that final gap up until Maghrib out of necessity. But that you do not delay your Asr prayer to just before Maghrib out of choice. Out of necessity you can pray it then. The other opinion though is that Asr time continues all the way up until sunset. 
So then sunset is Maghrib and that continues all the way up until when? When does Isha enter? MashaAllah. So as soon as the sun is fully set, Isha enters. So you're going to pray Maghrib and combine every day of the year. Ayo? The explanation is lacking. Anybody else? So when is Maghrib? Maghrib is when the sun has set. It's gone. It's gone down. Sun has set. So when is Isha then? So when the sun sets, it doesn't go pitch black straight away. Sun goes down, it doesn't go pitch black. That light is still there on the horizon where the sun has gone down. The redness, the orangeness, all of that, the rays of the sun that are left over are still there after the sun has gone down. That's why when you pray Maghrib, in the narrations it mentions when they used to pray Maghrib, afterwards they used to go outside and they said we could fire an arrow and we'd still be able to see where it lands. After they finished their Maghrib prayer, they would go outside, fire an arrow, and they could still see where it lands, indicating it was still light, and they've already just prayed. Maghrib, Maghrib is prayed after sunset, but it doesn't become pitch black instantly at Maghrib time. There's leftover light. That leftover light slowly disappears. When it disappears, then it becomes Isha time. But there is a difference about it. Ash-Shafaqul Ahmar, as it is known as, the redness that is left over as the sun disappears, as it sets. That redness, some of the scholars say, that is the sign of Isha. When the redness disappears, Isha time enters. Even if whiteness remains in the summer in the UK whiteness barely ever disappears some of the scholars their opinion is that Ashafaqul Ahmar is the Ahmar the red lights when the sun goes down the redness that remains takes an hour two hours that redness all disappears then Isha time has entered even if whiteness remains over there that is an opinion the other opinion is that actually it is the whiteness included. The redness that is left over after the sun goes down must disappear. And that whiteness that you see across the horizon down the west must also disappear. It must become pitch black. When that happens, Isha enters. That's the other opinion. And it carries on up until when... Up until Fajr is an opinion that Isha can be prayed all the way up until Fajr. Another opinion says up to half of the night and another opinion says up to a third of the night. But of course you know all of that because we've studied all of that in the past. So here then now it says we didn't do any of the explanation yet. 
We didn't read any of this yet. قَوْلُهُ فِي الْحَدِيثِ مِنْ مَسْجِدِ الْكَعْبَةِ وَهُوَ نَائِمٌ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ We touched upon this in general speech, but not from the speech of a Shaykh al-Ithaymeen. This point about Masjid al-Ka'bah and al-Masjid al-Haram. What are the boundaries of al-Masjid al-Haram? الذي اشتهر عند الناس أن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم أسري به من بيت أم هانئ What is popular, as Shaykh Al-Athameen says, what is widespread amongst the people is that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was in the house of Um Hanit when he was taken up. But the Shaykh says, as Shaykh Al-Athameen, As-Sawab, what is accurate, أنه أسري به من المسجد الحرام نفسه. That he was taken up whilst he was in Al-Masjid Al-Haram itself. فَإِنَّهُ كَانَ نَائِمًا فِي الْحِجَرِ فَأُسْرِيَ بِهِ مِنْ هُنَاكَ وَجَمَعَ بَيْنَهُمَا بَعْضُ الْعُلَمَاءِ فَقَالَ إِنَّهُ كَانَ نَائِمًا فِي بَيْتِ أُمِّهَانِ فَأُوْقِضَ ثُمَّ قَامْ فَنَامَ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ فَكَانَ ابْتِدَاءَ الْإِسْرَاءِ مِنْ بَيْتِ أُمِّهَانِ وَلَكِنْ حَقِيقَتُهُ كانت من المسجد الحرام. The issue here is the scholars always use this as the evidence, as one of the key evidences, to highlight that المسجد الحرام isn't just the Kaaba building around it, the mosque around the Kaaba with the extension now and everything. That mosque, the overview, the bird's eye view, pictures, and everything you see. That isn't Al-Masjid Al-Haram only. That it extends beyond that, a wider area outside of that building that you always see in the pictures now. Outside of that area, there's a greater area that is known as Al-Masjid Al-Haram. And the evidence they use is the fact that in the Quran, it mentions that the Prophet وسلم, was taken from Al-Masjid Al-Haram, but that he was actually outside of the physical building that we recognize as the Masjid in Mecca, Al-Masjid Al-Haram in the house of Umhani, indicating therefore the term Al-Masjid Al-Haram is being used for an area wider than just the physical building of Al-Masjid Al-Haram that we see now. And that's why some of the scholars have the opinion that the 100,000 reward, it is not restricted to just that physical building that you see now, Al-Masjid Al-Haram around the Kaaba, but that it's in the whole of the Haram area of Mecca, which is much bigger, of course. The same or slightly different discussion exists regarding the courtyard you have the physical building that you enter into bab this and bab that all of the different names outside of that there's a courtyard area around the whole mosque then you have all the hotels and the clock tower and everything that courtyard area and the same in medina 
You come out of the masjid, then there's a huge courtyard area with the umbrellas now everywhere. And then after that, another boundary beyond that is the hotels and everything. Those courtyard areas, the courtyard areas, are they included within the masjid boundaries? Meaning in Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi, it's how many rewards per prayer? Sure. Want to put your name to it? What's your name? Hassan says a thousand. Anybody else? It's a thousand. And the Mecca, in Mecca, Al-Masjid Al-Haram, it's hundred thousand. That one thousand and the hundred thousand, does it apply to the courtyards of the two mosques or not? All right, but if the mosque gets full completely, then people got no choice. So that's a bit different. If you got no choice, you got no choice. But otherwise, would the courtyard be included or not? Depends. What does it depend on? Uh-huh. So it is a bit of a difference of opinion. Some scholars will say that the courtyard is definitely part of the 1,000 in Medina and definitely a part of the 100,000 in Mecca. And one of the evidences they use as well is that from the practices that are established and the, the, the hukum that is established upon it is the hukum of the masjid. For example, buying and selling is not permissible in the courtyards of the two mosques. That's why when you go out from the mosque and then you walk across the courtyard and you get to the, the fence, the bigger wall at the end of the courtyard, right there, you'll have people sitting selling siwak, the miswak. They'll be sitting right outside the courtyard door, right outside they'll start all of the stalls and everything there. They're not allowed to put them inside of the courtyard because the ruling given to it is the ruling of the masjid that you cannot buy and sell in the masjid and therefore they are not permitted to buy and sell in the courtyard area so some of the scholars say look that's the ruling that is implemented upon it if you're telling us that the thousand doesn't count there the hundred thousand doesn't count there let them buy and sell and do what they want there it's not masjid but you are putting the hukum of the masjid onto that area no buying and selling occurring in that area and so some of the scholars they mention it is included Others, they say, from ihtiyat, it is better with the choice that you obviously pray inside the walls, the physical walls of the building of the masjid. What the brother mentioned here, when it gets full, then of course the rows spill out onto the courtyard and it really only gets full, full, at the times of Ramadan, Eid, Hajj, those kind of times. The rest of the year when you go for Umrah, it's rare that the masjid is full, full completely. There will always be space somewhere inside. But the point is, if it is completely full, like on Eid day, 
On Eid day, you go to pray Eid in Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, completely full, both floors. So in that case, it spills out into the courtyard. It may even spill outside of the courtyard into the streets going up to the hotels. All of the rows spilling out connected. You would have the full reward. If it is completely full and the rows are connected going out, you have the full reward. But what if it is not completely full? And this is the problem that you see every time you go to Umrah. That people come out of their hotels, for example, in Mecca and the clock tower, down to the ground floor, and then they just start lining up in the ground floor of the clock tower, and then the rows may go out from the front door of the clock tower, but then there are gaps. Outside you can see there are gaps, clearly white everywhere, before joining the rows of the uh, 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 coming out of the masjid. So they're not connected, it's not really full. Everybody just starts lining up at the bottom of the clock tower and just outside the clock tower. In that case, what's the ruling? The ruling is that is not how it should be done. In congregational prayer, the rows are supposed to be connected. And you can't leave gaps, huge gaps of 10 meters before the next bunch of rows is starting over there and 20 meters behind from the clock tower you're starting your rows it's a mistake that is not how it should be done at all you should leave that early part and carry on walking and go down to the masjid and join the rows in there and not even join outside realistically you can go in and there will be rows if they stop you the doors are closed now then of course you join where you can join but otherwise in al-masjid al-nabawi especially Instead of lining up outside where there'll be huge rows outside in the courtyard at the iqama for no reason. Half of the masjid there'll be space inside. That's something witnessed and known. So you should go inside and join the rows inside rather than just lining up outside. But that is a slightly different topic. Here the point was some of the scholars they say that maybe he was in the house of Umhani but then he went into the mosque so actually Al-Masjid Al-Haram was actually Al-Masjid Al-Haram that's being mentioned. But that's a difference of opinion between the scholars. What boundaries do you place upon Al-Masjid Al-Haram? وَفِيهِ أَيْضًا أَنَّ مَسْجِدَ الْكَعْبَ هُوَ نَفْسُ الْمَسْجِدِ الَّذِي هُوَ مَوْضِعُ الصَّلَةِ وَعَلَى هَذَا فَيَكُونُ التَّفْضِيلِ الْوَارِدْ أَنَّ صَلَاةً فِي مَسْجِدِ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم خير من ألف صلاة فيما سواه إلا المسجد الحرام هذا لفظ الصحيحين ولفظ مسلم من حديث ميمونة أن حديث ميمونة قال إلا مسجد الكعبة يدل على أن المراد بالمسجد الحرام هو موضع الصلاة المكان الذي فيه الكعبة. The narration that mentions that the prayer in Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi is a thousand times better than the prayer in Al-Masjid Al-Haram. Again, it could be differed about what Al-Masjid Al-Haram is and the boundaries are. But then there's another wording of the hadith that says it's a thousand times better in Medina Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi except for the Masjid of the Kaaba. So now it's specifying that building area as the masjid where a hundred thousand is given. So there are differences on that. The other issue that we always mention in this topic, we mentioned it before the scholars highlight too. If you go to Umrah 
and you take your families of course and your wives and your mothers and your daughters and your sisters then what is better for them to pray in the masjid al-masjid al-nabawi and al-masjid al-haram or to pray in their hotels because normally their homes are better for them pray in the hotel anybody else you want to put your name to that so Adam says you take your families to Umrah you take your families to Hajj he's applying the fatwa to everybody that you can leave your your families your wives everybody in the hotel they pray in the hotel inshallah everybody else what do you think better to pray in the hotels or to pray in the masjid a thousand a hundred thousand hotel in the masjid so the narration is clear لا تمنعوا إماء الله مساجد الله وبيوتهن خير لهن. Do not prevent the إماء الله, the female slaves of Allah, the servants of Allah. Do not prevent them from the mosques, but their homes are better for them. Do not prevent them from the mosques, but their homes are better for them. That is a general narration that applies everywhere, and it applies in Medina. For the women living in Medina right now, does it not apply to them? Applies to them. Their homes are better for them. The women living in Mecca, does it not apply to them? Applies to them. Their homes are better for them. So even somebody going on Umrah and Hajj, it is applicable. If the woman stayed behind in the hotel and prayed there, perfectly good. Nothing wrong with that at all. She wishes to go to the masjid, and obviously you would. Obviously. You go to Umrah, you go to Hajj, then obviously you want to go into the mosque. Goes without saying. Then the narration says, "La tamna'u ima Allahi masajid Allah." You don't prevent them from going. Of course, go, go and pray in the masjid. Go and pray in Al Madina in Mecca. But overall, the narration applies. If the women said, "We're going to stay here in the hotel for this one," you go. Then that's perfectly good. The husband shouldn't say, "But here we're in Mecca, Medina. You're going to stay in the hotel." Perfectly good for them to stay in the hotel and pray in the hotel. But if they wish to go out to the masjid, then of course they can go to the masjid. So the, the narration applies even there. Then also the actual point of the narration, because remember we're in the chapter regarding the speech of Allah. Al-kalamu ma'allahi azza wa jal fi laylatil mi'raj. That on that night, the Prophet ﷺ spoke to Allah. Allah spoke to him with the obligation of the 50 prayers. That was the speech occurring. Allah spoke to the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, and so it mentions in the Quran, Subhanalladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-haram ila al-masjid al-aqsa. These are the, the, this is the ayah that the scholars mention as well regarding the boundaries issue. But the point here is that on the night of Al-Isra' Al-Mi'raj, Allah spoke to the Prophet ﷺ, and that is the purpose of the narration in the chapter regarding the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
there is a lot of other discussion the Sheikh does mention regarding the night of Al-Isra' Al-Mi'raj but as they say لَيْسَ مَوْضُوعُنَا اليوم. It is not our topic of discussion for this chapter right now. After that, بَابُ كَلَامِ الرَّبِّ مَعَ أَهْلِ الْجَنَّةِ What time is Isha? Ten? So the chapter regarding the speech of Allah to the people of paradise. That Allah speaks to the people of paradise. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا يَحْيَى بْنُ سُلَيْمَانِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِ بْنُ وَهَبْ قَالَ حدثني مالك عن زيد بن أسلم عن عطاء بن يسار عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله يقول لأهل الجنة يا أهل الجنة that indeed Allah سبحانه وتعالى says to the people of paradise O people of paradise فيقولون, so they say, لبيك ربنا وسعديك that we are here in your obedience, in your service والخير في يديك and all of the goodness is with you فيقول, so then he says, هل رضيتم Allah says to the people of paradise, speaks to them and says are you satisfied? فيقولون so they say وما لنا لا نرضى يا رب they say why would we possibly not be satisfied they are in right now they are in paradise so they say what is wrong with us that we would not be satisfied why would we possibly not be satisfied our Lord وقد أعطيتنا ما لم تعطي أحدا من خلقك and you have given us what you have not given anybody else in your creation. Meaning you've given us paradise. فيقول, and then Allah says to them, Allah says to them then, Shall I not give you even better than that? Shall I not give you even more, even better than that? فَيَقُولُونَ So then they say, the people of paradise, Ya Rabb, وَأَيُّ شَيْءٍ أَفْضَلُ مِنْ ذَلِكَ They say, our Lord, and what could possibly be better than this? What could possibly be better than that, than paradise? فَيَقُولُ And so then Allah says, أُحِلُّ عَلَيْكُمْ رِضْوَانِي فَلَا أَصْخَطُ عَلَيْكُمْ بَعِدَهُ أَبَدًا That I place upon you my pleasure and I will never be displeased with you ever that you have the pleasure of Allah Allah is pleased with you and that you will never have my displeasure ever and that is certainly something great and tremendous to have the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just like in the narration we mentioned before about the battle of Khaybar when the Prophet sallallahu tomorrow I am going to give the flag of the army to a man to a man who loves Allah and his messenger and Allah and his messenger love him 
That night all of the companions were wishing and hoping they would be given the flag tomorrow because it would be a testimony that they love Allah and the Messenger but more importantly that Allah and the Messenger love this person to have the testimony that Allah loves you they all wanted that Umar ibn Khattab said I never ever cared about leadership or being given the, the authority or the position for anything but that night I was wishing I was given the flag and the leadership of the army the next day not for the sake of the leadership or the flag but for the sake of having the testimony that he is a man who Allah loves so this is a tremendous thing that I place upon you my satisfaction that I place upon you my pleasure and that I will never have this pleasure upon you the point of this narration again very clear and that point being that Allah speaks to the people of paradise and they speak back they speak with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then qala haddathana Muhammad ibn Sinan qala haddathana Fulayh qala haddathana Hilal an Ata ibn Yasar an Abi Hurayrata anna al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama kana yawman yuhaddithu wa indahu rajulun min ahli al-Badiyah أن رجلا من أهل الجنة استأذن ربه في الزرع فقال أولست فيما شئت قال بلى ولكني أحب ونزرع فأصرع وبذر فتبادر الطرف فتبادر الطرف نباته واستواءه واستحصاده وتكويره أمثال الجبال فيقول الله تعالى دونك يا ابن آدم فإنه لا يشبعك شيء فقال الأعرابي يا رسول الله لا تجد هذا إلا قرشيا أو أنصاريا فإنهم أصحاب زرع فأما نحن فلسنا بأصحاب زرع فضحك رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم هي what's the English saying of it Read out the English. Mm. The beginning of this narration, it mentions that one day the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, he was speaking one day and there was a man from the Bedouins with him and he was mentioning, the Prophet was mentioning, how a man in paradise, he's in paradise, this man, a man in paradise will ask Allah for land to cultivate, to, to do agriculture on some land. So then Allah will say, But have you not got everything you desire? He will say, He will say yes. He's in paradise, of course. He will say yes. But I love to cultivate. I also love to cultivate. So then, so then he sows the seeds. And instantly, those crops, they grow and they ripen. Instantly the agriculture, it occurs for him. 
Amen. So then when he's got what he asked Allah for, he's got the land he can cultivate, that's what, that, that is what he loves. So he has the land, he cultivates it, instantly it grows to the size of mountains it mentions. And then Allah says to him, here you go. And Allah mentions to him that Bani Adam, mankind are such that they are never satisfied. What's the word they used? No, no, before that. Satisfies, yeah. So mankind, they are net, never satisfied. No matter how much a person has, he always wants more. Then the Bedouin, after hearing this narration about a man in paradise, he's got all the blessings in paradise, and then he asks Allah for land to cultivate. That's what he loves doing. So then he's given that, he cultivates it, it grows instantly, everything. And Allah tells him, here you go, you have that blessing too. And mankind is never uh, satisfied. So then when the Bedouin heard this narration, he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, you're not going to find that this man was anybody other than a Qurashi or an Ansari. Because they are the ones who love to do cultivation and agriculture. The, the, the Qurashis and the Ansaris. They are the ones who do that. That's who it's going to be. This narration about this man in paradise, he's going to be a Qurashi or an Ansari. They like to do that. We, the Bedouins, we don't do that kind of thing. So then the Prophet laughed at his comment. When he said, Messenger of Allah, this narration about the man in paradise, it's going to be one of the Qurashis or the Ansaris. We don't do that kind of thing. So that was something amusing. And the Prophet laughed at that statement. The point here is what? What is the shahid? Why has Imam al-Bukhari mentioned this narration here? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to the man. This man asks Allah for the cultivating land. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to him. All clearly there mentioned in the narration. Look at how many multiple examples there are. How many different narrations and a hadith. Ayat that Imam al-Bukhari has mentioned affirming the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This one here now, Bab Dhikrillahi bil Amr wa Dhikril Ibad bil Dua wa Tadarru' wa Risala wa Iblah. Likawlihi ta'ala, Fadkuruni Adkurkum. What and also what to do? Alayhim never a new hin is all a in Kana Kabura alaykum maqami what is Kiri be ayatilla Fa'alallahita wakil to Fajmiru Amrakum washuraka akum Thumala yakun Amrukum alaykum rummatan thummakdu Ilayawala tunirun. فَإِنْ تَوَلَّيْتُمْ فَمَا سَأَلْتُكُمْ مِنْ أَجْرٍ إِنْ أَجْرِيَ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ وَأُمِرْتُ أَنْ أَكُونَ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ غُمَّةٌ هَمٌّ وَضِيقٌ In this chapter now the mentioning of 
ذكر الله بالأمر وذكر العباد بالدعاء والتضرع والرسالة والإبلاغ Several points mentioned in the title regarding the mentioning of Allah بالأمر the command and the servants with the dua and their subservience to Allah and the messengership that was given and the conveyance of that messengership الشيخ الاثيمين says يعني أن الله سبحانه وتعالى يكون كلامه المضاف إليه كلامه بنفسه وأما العباد فلهم الدعاء والتضرع والرسالة والبلاغ As for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his speech is directly attributed to him. Allah's speech is directly attributed to himself. That Allah speaks that speech of Allah. As for us, then in terms of our situation, then we have dua. We make dua to Allah. We supplicate to Allah. Tadarru'a. That we have that submission and humility before Allah. Al-Risalah wal-Balaq, the messengership that came and then the conveyance of that to the prophets and messengers. And then it mentions, وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ We mentioned this in the earlier chapters. If one of the mushrikeen seeks your assistance, then give it to him until he hears the speech of Allah Kalamullah al-Muballigh Min qabl al-Tali The speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Which has been narrated Or which has been conveyed Which has been conveyed وَلَيْسَ كَلَامُ اللَّهِ الَّذِي هُوَ فَوْقَ الْعَرْشِ And not the speech of Allah from above the throne The ayah when it says until they hear the speech of Allah i.e. the speech of Allah that has been conveyed and is recited in the Qur'an, not the actual speech of Allah in terms of Allah speaking to you. The speech of Allah in the Qur'an is the speech of Allah, the actual speech of Allah also, but that is there in the Qur'an. Then there is Allah directly speaking to you with sound and voice. So here in the ayah, it's not talking about Allah speaking to you with sound and voice, but the speech of Allah in the Qur'an. Until that is heard. So again, the point being there, the affirmation of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It goes on to mention that the author says, the ayah, فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ وَاشْكُرُونِي وَلَا تَكْفُرُونَ That remember me and I will remember you and thank me and do not be disbelievers. The author did not mention the last part of the ayah though. لِأَنَّ الشُّكْرِ لِلَّهِ هُوَ الْعِبَادَةِ Thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an act of worship. وَاشْكُرُولِي Thank me. Thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an act of worship. And then it mentions also فَاذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ that if you remember me then I remember you. That is the conditional clause that you remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah remembers you. Allah is in your aid and assistance. And then there are other examples given also. وَتَلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ 
This now talking about the news of Nuh alayhi salam that narrate to them the affairs of Nuh alayhi salam. إذ قال لقومه when he said to his people إذ متعلقه بأتلو أو بنبع فهل تلاوته حين قال نوح لقومه لا إذا لا تصلح لأتلو ولكن نبع نبأه في هذا الحال This is simply highlighting the difference between where that statement is attributed to but the point here is simply again to highlight the, that information which is recited in the Quran from the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The scholars, they highlight when you see the statements in the Quran that a prophet said to his people, وَإِذْ قَالَ Ibrahim, وَإِذْ قَالَ one of the prophets and messengers. Then is that statement directly how the prophets and messengers said it or is it a narration of what they said? Scholars mention it is a narration of what they said because they would have not even spoken in Arabic, many of them. Previous prophets and messengers, many of them had their other languages. They were not upon Arabic as the language. So they would have spoken to their people in the language. But in the Quran then Allah is narrating to us what they said and what they uh, uh, stipulated to their people. But all of that then is the speech of Allah narrating to us about their stories and what they said. The Shaykh gives further examples and explanations of it all. But the point again, the whole chapter is regarding the speech of Allah. And then it mentions again at the end the ayah regarding them hearing the speech of Allah. حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ Allah. Really, when you focus on this, you can see how long Al-Imam Al-Bukhari went in on the chapter regarding the speech of Allah. Because of the great trial that occurred in the past and continues to occur, the mihna at the time of Al-Imam Ahmed, how tremendous a trial it became, this issue of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Qur'an and the creation of the Qur'an, and so he delved into this topic giving multiple different evidences regarding the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We'll stop on that point for today. We'll carry on with the next section from next week inshallah ta'ala after the Maghrib prayer straight away. Any questions on that or anything else before we conclude then? Forbidding the women from going to the mosques, the narration said, La tamna'u ima Allahi masajid Allah, do not prevent the, the female servants of Allah, the women, from attending the mosques. So the, the narration is highlighting the impermissibility of doing so. However, as the scholars have mentioned, obviously all of that applies with the rest of the sunnah. Sunnah, all of it, all of it comes together in its context. So now, for example, for this narration to be applied, then the other conditions have to be in place. That there is obviously a suitable place for the woman to pray in that masjid. If there wasn't, 
there isn't any suitable place to pray, there isn't any safe place to pray, etc., those types of things, then you could say that, no, I don't give you permission to go to that masjid or to, to come along to that place. For example, the woman wants to go herself one day, maybe the husband is at work, and the woman seeks permission, can I leave the home to go to the masjid for dhuhr or asr or something? Husband says, no, it's a 15-minute walk, and the route you have to take, it's not a safe route. So I don't give you permission to go out. Again, permissible, no problem in that. You are not preventing her from going to the mosque per se. You are preventing her due to the other harms of exiting the home. It could be that, for example, again, there is a woman in your household who does not cover herself appropriately. She does not cover appropriately as required by the sunnah. So then you would prevent her. She says, I want to go out to the mosque. Yet she's not covered appropriately. She's wearing perfume. That's how she is. And you have to explain to her, no, cannot give you permission to leave the home like this. If you want to go to the masjid, then you have to fix X, Y, and Z. That is what is required. So there could be other multiple factors that come into it. If all of those factors are not factors, and you have no reason whatsoever to prevent a, a woman from your family to go to the mosque, then you are wrong for doing so. If there is no reason whatsoever, none of those factors and different types of examples, and there are others, apply, there is nothing to prevent you from letting her go, but you just say no for no reason, then some of the scholars say, they mention that's wrong. And they give examples from the time of the Salaf, maybe Ibn Umar or one of the other companions, maybe the... the the, not the, grands, the grandson of Umar ibn Khattab, perhaps Salim, or one of the others. They mention a narration whereby he prevented his wife or somebody from the women folk from going to the mosque. And that his father, perhaps Ibn Umar, or one of, you will have to check the names exactly, but from the time of the Salaf, that his father refused to speak to him afterwards. Saying the messenger of Allah says, don't prevent your women and you prevent her. And he, he didn't speak to him for, they say, the rest of his life. In some of the narrations. Saying, you're opposing the sunnah of the Prophet Sunnah tells you, don't prevent them. If you have no reason, then don't prevent them. Let them go if they want to go. If you have reason, like some of those other reasons we mentioned. Something legitimate for a reason not to let them go. Fair enough. But when there is no reason and they ask to go. They want to come along, then let them come along and let them go. Especially in times like the lessons at the masjid. So they want to attend the maghrib prayer. They want to come out for that prayer because they then want to attend the class. Those type of things, if there is no reason to prevent them, you should not prevent them. And it, perhaps it could even be classed among some of the scholars to the level of a sin. If you're going to class this as an absolute commandment, that you do not prevent the women from going to the mosques if they request when there is no factor preventing it. No, okay, so in that situation, then let's say now the husband has inappropriately prevented the woman from going to the mosque. There's no reason whatsoever, but he just won't let her go. Then the woman shouldn't go. It's not a situation of the woman saying, I'm going to disobey him here because I have the right. And the hadith says, I have the right. He's got no reason to prevent me. He admits he's got no reason to prevent me. He's just preventing me. So I'm going to disobey in this case and go, no. 
Because in this scenario, when you look at the situation then, again all of the sunnah together, is it an obligation for the woman to go to the mosque? No. Is it an obligation for her to obey her husband? Yes. Therefore, in that situation, even without any good reason, she would still have to obey the husband and not go out of the house. That type of thing, when you can disobey, is only in situations of obligations. Your parents tell you, don't grow your beard. You can disobey your parents. And you explain to them, loving Allah and the Messenger and obeying them is, is priority over and above even the parents. You cannot tell me to stop growing my beard or shave my beard. They tell the women, do not cover yourselves when you go outside. What's this? Don't cover yourself. Dress like the rest of us in the family dress. If the woman says, no, I refuse. I'm not going to go out like that. I'm not going to go out with you like that. I'm going to cover myself. I'm going to wear the appropriate garments. Otherwise, leave me here in the home. She's allowed to say that. She's allowed in that instance. You can disobey in those instances because that is as the narration says, لا طاعة لمخلوق في معصية الله You cannot obey anybody in creation if it means disobedience to Allah. You're going to obey your father who says, don't grow your beard. You've obeyed your father, but you've now disobeyed Allah. And that can't be. A woman, he, she's told by her father or her mother, don't cover up, just go out. Don't cover up. We refuse to let you covering up. If she does that, she's obeyed her parents, but then she's disobeyed. Allah, you cannot obey anybody in creation if it means disobedience to the Creator. That's the instances of being able to do those things. But here in this case, there's nothing. There's no obligation for the woman to go to the mosque. No obligation in the first place. So you can't use that in this context and say, I'm going to go anyway. We'll round up on that then. Inshallah, we'll carry on next week straight after Maghrib, which obviously be slightly earlier then, maybe a 10 past 8 start approximately. Inshallah.